All right, guys, so we are in lesson 14. Uh, we're going to look at the last three chapters of Amos, which is chapter 7, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 15. And I've entitled this section, uh, The Five Visions, because that's exactly what it's about. So uh, the book kind of makes a shift to Amos presenting five different visions that he received from the Lord. And so we're going to go through all five today. Some are, the first two are quick to go through, uh, but when we get through the third, fourth, fifth vision, there's kind of a kind of a historical note that's also in there. Uh, we'll, we'll get our way through here. And again, I want to remind you, think in terms of God's people. Specifically, it's for Israel, but if we want to draw some insight for ourselves, think about us as God's people. Not think about a nation. Only one nation is spoken up here, and that's Israel, and you can't compare it to anything else. So let's talk about the first vision, okay? And it's very similar to something that Joel saw in his prophecy. So the Lord shows Amos a vision of a locust swarm that appeared at the beginning of the second crop. Now, the scripture is a little, he's being a little bit specific here is the beginning of the second crop. So he says, obviously they had different planting seasons in an area that's very different to ours. And it was some sort of grain harvest. And then they would replant or there would be another product. But the first harvest, it says in the text, went to the king. So there was obviously a portion that would be given to the king. Now, we don't, we don't understand that. But it's kind of like a taxation. They're agrarian culture, and part of your responsibility was is that a portion of your crops would go to the king. Israel did that all along, okay? In fact, if you remember back when Samuel was asked by the tribes to give, the, give, uh, give them a king, God told him, go tell them what it's going to be like, warn them. Okay, and he goes and warns them that if you get a king, he's going to demand of you certain things. He's going to demand, demand your, your children, your young boys, your young girls. He's going to demand of you your crops, you know, for, and, and they were like, go ahead. We want a king to be like the other nations. And so, okay, they got a king. And the first portion, according to the passage, talks about it was going to the king. Well, now the second harvest is coming. At the beginning of the second crop, which is what they would have, there's a locust swarm. Okay? Now, what, would, what, what do locusts do? Yeah, they eat everything agriculturally, okay? And, and they still have that problem to this day out there. I don't know if you realize that. I think it was just within the last year I was reading in the news that in the area there, that Middle Eastern area up into Iran and so forth, they had a very severe locust swarm. And, of course, that would be devastating to them because they would have their, their need for their crops. Now, this is especially devastating because they just gave their what? Their first crop to who? The king. And you're the farmer, and here comes a locust swarm, and what does it do? Eats up your second crop. Is that pretty devastating? Okay. 
pretty devastating. And so then what happens is that after the locusts devoured everything, Amos prayed for forgiveness. Okay? Amos intercedes. In fact, if you look at the passage here, uh, verse 5, chapter 7, O Lord God, cease, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So God relented. Why? Because Amos interceded. Amos interceded for Israel, and the Lord relented concerning the locust plague. Okay, so God relented. Because one man what? Prayed, right? Okay. One man of God, one of God's people prayed and asked for forgiveness and was asking for God to do what he could do to stop it. Well, then here comes the second one now. So when we get to verse 4 to 6, this is the second vision. The Lord shows Amos a vision of a devouring fire that struck the territory. So now there's fires that are striking the territory. Okay, so would that be devastating? You just experienced a locust plague. That is going to eat up everything. So what's the land filled with? Probably the remains of everything the locusts have left. Things going to be, it's a dry, arid community anyhow. Things ripe for a fire. You know what I'm saying? So God sends a devouring fire, okay? And again, once again, Amos interceded for Israel and the Lord relented concerning the fire, okay? So once again, God relents because Amos is praying, okay? Amos is praying. Now, when we get to the third vision, there's no more intercession. With these two, Amos is interceding. And I think I can understand why he does that, okay? Let me explain to you why I think he does it. Because with these first two, who is the one who's being affected by it? Is it the king? No, he's not going to go without food, right? He's already got his grain from the first, from the first crop, right? Is he going to be affected by fire? No, he's living in a palace, in the city, it's, it's the people in the rural area, okay? And Amos is from a rural area. He's from a rugged rural area, and he, you know that he, he feels for the oppressed. He feels for the poor, the needy, and so he intercedes, okay? So he's interceding, and God relents. Well, that brings us to the third vision, and this one is a little interesting, The Lord shows Amos a vision of the Lord standing on a wall with a plumb line. Or does anybody know what a plumb line is? Okay, so say that again. Okay, a weight that they hang from a string, and what do you do with that? It's kind of, it's like a measurement of straight. It's what you... You build against, you know what I'm saying? You want to make sure the wall is right and everything. Well, God is, the vision is, is he's on a wall and he's got a plumb line, 
okay? And uh, so, gosh, you guys are really doing well. You knew what exactly what it was. And you know what? I thought when I thought about this, I thought, so this is written 700 BC. Here we are in the 21st century. Here we are 2,800 years later. We still know what a plumb line is. We still use plumb lines, right? You know what I'm saying? That's, there's just some things that we continue to use, okay? So here's God. He's standing on a wall with a plumb line. The Lord tells Amos that he is setting a plumb line in the midst of his people. So God's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people. Now, why do you think he's doing that? What, what would be the purpose of doing that? In the midst of the people. He's not measuring a wall. What's that? Uh, well, in a, in a sense, maybe Gene dividing them. But what what the plumb line? Plumb line is if I we just if you go by what uh, Tim said or Tess said, Tim, okay, <laughs> that what Tim said, you can see whether things are out of measure or not. So if he's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people, what's he checking with his people? Okay, how honest or how true they are, okay. Anybody else? He's kind of setting a line and saying, how do you measure up? Did you understand what I'm saying? Are you where you should be or are you off kilter? Okay, so that's what he's doing here, okay. He's setting a plumb line in the midst of his people. He proclaims that the high places of Israel will be desolate, and the sanctuary is destroyed. So obviously, did he find that they were true? No, because he immediately, after setting the plumb line, says, I'm going to destroy your high places. Now, anybody know what a high place is? It's mentioned many times in the scriptures, mentioned in the historical books. It's mentioned throughout the prophets. What's a high place? Okay, where their religious places were at, well, what it was is that, okay, in their culture, basically on every hill, they had a shrine. On every hill, they had a shrine. And, and it started out innocently, maybe they had, a sh had an altar to God there, the true God, but over time, that gets perverted, and now they have idols, and they're offering incense to some other god, or they have an Ashtaroth pole or something there, Okay. So every, every, on every high place in Israel, so think about it, it's a rugged area with hills. Now, would you say it's kind of like around here? We have hills around here, mountains, okay? On every top of every mountain was, a, was these shrines and sanctuaries. Oh, he's being specific about the sanctuary, which one here in a moment. But they would build an altar there. But when God built the temple and when he had a tabernacle, what did the Lord say? Where was it that Israel was supposed to worship him? At the temple, right? Not on the high places, but go to the temple to make their sacrifices. They were sacrificing on all these hilltops. And ultimately it got perverted to where they were sacrificing to other gods. The sanctuaries that he's talking about here is, okay, this is the northern kingdom, Remember, Jeroboam I, he was the first king when they separated from, from Judah, and he didn't want the people going back to Jerusalem. 
to worship there because he thought that sooner or later they're going to rejoin back to one nation. So he set up two golden calves, one in the north and one at Bethel, and there were sanctuaries there. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and so God's going to destroy those places of false worship, okay? He's going to destroy those places of false worship. And he said that he will rise up with a sword against the house of Jeroboam II. Now, Jeroboam II is the king of the northern kingdom at this time. So he's saying, I'm going to rise up with a sword and take out Jeroboam II. Why? Because he was not a godly king. In fact, do you remember this statement? It's from first, it's first and second kings. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you remember that phrase? Such and such did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? And the point is, is that he wasn't a righteous king. He wasn't a king. He was, he was a wicked man who chased after other gods. Now, that brings us to a pause, okay? So if you look in your Bibles, I want you to look at verse 10. Now, we're going to be introduced to a guy named Amaziah. Now, some of you might say, well, you know, hey, George, I remember when we went through the kings, there were some kings named Am Amaziah. Is this the same guy? No. Amaziah was probably a common name, kind of like Bill would be, or Tim, or Joe. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so you meet a lot of different people who have similar names, right? Or Rob. Okay, what's that? Or Bob, yeah, you know, one variation of the other. They're both Roberts, they just have different ways of saying it. Do you know what I'm saying? Amaziah, though, is, has a common name, but he's a priest. So let's take a look here. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel, so he's one of these priests of these shrines, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel. For it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I'm no prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet. But I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So this is Amos communicating what the Lord says to Amaziah. Are you ready for this? All right. Your wife shall be a harlot in a city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by a survey line. And you shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his own land. Wow, what, what uh, 
What a sweet way of saying things, right? Okay, well, let's talk about this, okay? Because here it is. He's being challenged by one of these false priests, okay? So Amaziah, a priest of the shrine in Bethel, sent a complaint concerning Amos to Jeroboam. Now, this is a serious thing. These kings, these wicked kings, did not like people speaking against them or prophesying against them, and it is typical, and we see examples of this in First and Second Kings where somebody prophesies against a king and he ends up being thrown in jail. Or worse can happen, he can be killed. So this priest is complaining about Amos to the king. He states that Amos had conspired against the king in the midst of the people. So he's stirring up the people with his words, and that's conspiracy, okay? That's conspiracy. He shares that Amos proclaimed that Jeroboam would die and the people would be exiled. Jeroboam would die, and he does, okay? And then ultimately, a few kings later, the people will be exiled, all right? Amaziah tells Amos to go back to Judah. So he recognizes he's not from there. Okay? How would he know that? Probably the way that he speaks. Okay? So if somebody from Alabama came in here, he may dress like us, but you would figure out real quick that he's not from around here because of the way he what? Yeah, his accent, his speech, right? Same thing there. They had different dialects, different, different ways of sounding that would show them where they're from. So he tells Amos to, to go back to Judah and never prophesy in Bethel again. He tells Amos that Bethel is the king's sanctuary. Well, yeah, King Jeroboam I had set it up. It's a special place, okay? And residence. So it obviously means that the king sometimes goes there. All right? Sometimes goes there. So here's how Amos responds. I think this is interesting. He responds that he is a simple shepherd and not a prophet. I'm just a simple shepherd. Okay? And I'm not a prophet. Now, he says a son of a prophet. Now, why would he say that? Well, in the northern kingdom, if you go back to Elijah there were a group of prophets who were called the sons of prophets. Okay, but by this point in the history of Israel, they had become corrupted. And they kind of say the things that the king wanted them to say. But in the days of Elijah, they didn't. So he's quickly saying, I'm not a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet. I'm not a part of that group, okay? So, he states that the Lord called him and told him to prophesy to Israel. So basically he says, look, I'm only responding because God told me to come up here. And God told me to prophesy to Israel. Okay? To Israel. So he announces the Lord's judgment concerning Amaziah and the kingdom. So here's what he does. Here's I'm coming up here telling you what the Lord says, so here's what the Lord says. And this is a specific message to Amaziah, okay? Specific message to Amaziah. It's pretty shocking. He says, your wife will be a harlot. Now, his wife, being a priest, he's probably in a position of, of status there, 
okay? But his wife now is going to be reduced to becoming a harlot, a prostitute. He goes on and says that his sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. They're going to be killed. Your sons and daughters, your wife's going to be a, a, a harlot in the city. Your kids are going to die, okay? Your kids are going to die. He says your land will be divided by survey line. What do you think that means? Okay, well, who's going to do that? Yeah, the ones who will take them over. So there, it was like, you know, you remember from the law, don't move the ancient boundary stones. What, what you had as a possession was your possession. Nobody was supposed to take it, okay? And so he's saying, your land, what's your promised inheritance, is going to be taken away from you, and it's going to be divided by survey line. People, Other people are going to come and, you know, I'm saying that might have been your back 40, but they're going to divide it in 10 10 acres, you know, plots or something. You know what I'm saying? And so he's making the point here, you are going to have everything taken away from you. Your wife's going to be a harlot. Your kids are going to die by the sword. Your property, everything you own is going to be taken away from you and divided. Look what else he says here. This would be a scary thing. He tells him that when this happens, the other thing is, and you shall die in a defiled land. What does that mean? What do you think that means? Now, the shall die is a certainty. This is going to happen to you, Amaziah, and you're going to die in a defiled land. What do you think a defiled land means? Well, a land that's not of God, but it wouldn't be where then? Yeah, it wouldn't be in the northern kingdom, so he's going to die somewhere else then. He's going to die in exile. So you have to understand, even though the Jews at this time, those of Israel, were not necessarily following the Lord with their whole heart, they still viewed all the surrounding nations around them as being unclean, defiled places. And so what happens is, He's being told, you're not going to die here. You're going to die in a defiled land. You're going to be taken away, what? Captive into what? Exile. Somewhere else where you don't want to go. Do you know what I'm saying? You're going to, and, and then he goes on and says that the nation will be taken into exile and so forth. So that, that's a pretty, pretty bad, bad thing to tell him, right? Yeah, but why is, why, is, why is the Lord pronouncing this? Because he challenged his prophet. Do you know what I'm saying? He challenged the one who was supposed to bring this message of judgment. Okay? This message of judgment. So, the Lord shows, now we're going to get to the fourth vision. Okay? The fourth vision. This one is the basket of summer fruit. Okay? A basket of ripe summer fruit. All right. All right. Now let's stop for a moment. With the plumb line, was there any kind of intercession from Amos with this with the third vision? Did you see any kind of intercession from Amos? No, not at all. Okay. Now we get to the fourth vision, which is this basket of summer fruit. It's in chapter eight, verses one to fourteen. So here, here's what he sees. Amos shows uh, the Lord shows Amos a vision of a basket of summer fruit. The Lord states that the time is ripe 
and he will spare Israel no more. So all he does is, it's, it's interesting, God, it doesn't make sense to us, but so there's a basket of ripe fruit. That's all it says is there's a basket of ripe fruit. And that's the vision he sees. But then out of that, he, the Lord develops a concept, and he says, the time is ripe, and I'm not going to spare Israel anymore. So the implication is, is even though they were sinning, God was still what? Watching over them, taking care of them, right? Protecting them. Well, now he says the time is ripe. When you look at this basket of fruit, they're ripe. It's ready. You have to eat it, right? So now the time is right, and I'm not going to protect you anymore, okay? I'm not going to protect Israel anymore. So Israel will be marked by mourning death, and exile. So when you look at what it says here in chapter 8, it is, it, is, it is amazing here that he says in verse 2, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. So he's not, he's not, going, to, he's going, to, he's not going to be just ignoring what's going on. He says, and the, songs of the and the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord. Many dead bodies everywhere, they shall be thrown out in silence. There's going to be so many dead. You know, here when, when someone dies, we take care, right, in, in taking them to a funeral home and then and up to the point of burial. There's going to be so many dead, they're just throwing the bodies out. Okay? And they're doing it in silence. Why? Mourning because of the great everything that's going on. Hear this, you have swallowed up the needy and make the poor of the land fall. So there's going to be death, there's going to be mourning, there's going to be exile. So here's the results. The Lord directs his words to those who oppress the poor. Isn't it interesting? What's the issue with God here? How they treat everybody else their oppression of the poor. The Lord states that because of their greed, the Lord will cause grief in the land. Because their total focus is selfish in what they can get, their greed, he's going to cause grief in the land. And here's the final one. This is interesting, isn't it? The Lord states that his silence concerning his word will be even more terrifying. Now, let me explain to you what that means. Let me read it to you here, okay? When you look down at... He said, verse 11, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east, and they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. In that day, fair virgins and strong men shall faint from thirst, and those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as your God lives, O Dan, or on the way, as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So what was the famine here? They, they're going to be looking for something, and is God going to provide it? 
No. They're going to want a word from God, and there's a famine. Now, here's what pops up immediately in my mind. There is an illustration of somebody else that this happened to. Anybody got a clue who wanted a word from the Lord, and he no longer got a word of the Lord? Anybody got a clue? It's in 1 Samuel, end of 1 Samuel, was a king. I'm helping you out, a king. You want me to help you out further? From the tribe of Benjamin. I hear somebody whispering. Who, who is it? God departed from him and, and, and no one, he received no more words from the Lord. Who was that? There was a period of silence. Drove him even more mad. Who was it? Can I help you? End of 1 Samuel. Who's 1 Samuel about? We know it's about David, but there was a king before David. Can I help you now? Steve? Is that his name? No. What, what's his name? Saul. King Saul. Yes. So because he couldn't get a word from the Lord, no prophet, there was no word to a prophet, no, there was no word from God anywhere to him, he needed to desperately know what to do against the Philistines. So what does he do? He does the most abominable thing ever. He goes to a what? A witch or a medium to consult with the dead, which was against God's word, right? But he was so desperate for a word from the Lord. Now here in this passage, Amos is saying that there's going to be a famine, there's going to be a thirst, and it isn't for food, it isn't going to be for water, it's going to be with the people. They're going to want to hear from God. Why? Because judgment is coming. They're facing a catastrophe. And they're going to want to hear from God, but God's not going to speak to them. That's terrifying, isn't it? God's not going to speak to them. That happens in our life. What do you mean it happens in our life? Well, the exact opposite happens. If you're going through a calamity and you go to the Lord, you may not get a word like, this is what I want you to do, but what he does give you is peace, right? Peace that surpasses all understanding. And you're like, that speaks to you that God is with me. They're, they're getting nothing. That's a serious judgment, isn't it? Okay, so the Lord states his silence concerning his word will even will be even more terrifying. Okay. Amos sees, now we're in the fifth vision. This is the fifth vision, now the final vision. Amos sees a vision of the Lord standing by the altar calling for a judgment on the shrine in Bethel. Now, when it says that he's standing by the altar, which altar do you think he means? Anybody? When you read that, he's standing by the altar. What altar do you think he means? Okay, yes, the one at Bethel. Because sometimes you might think, oh, he's talking about the altar in Jerusalem. No, no, he's not talking about the altar at the temple. He's talking about the altar in Bethel for this golden calf. And he sees a vision of the Lord standing by the altar calling for judgment, okay? The Lord proclaims, that though they seek to flee, judgment will find them. This is interesting. Look at what it says here. This is in chapter 9. Okay, when we go over to chapter 9. 
Here's what he says. Verse 2, strike the doorposts, excuse me, verse 1, strike the doorposts and the thresholds that the thresholds may shake. Break them on their heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with the sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. Here's what he says. Though they dig into hell, though my, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to heaven, I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. What, what's he, I mean, this is a pretty elaborate way of you can't get away from me. What's he trying to communicate here then? What do you think the ultimate point is in this? He's upset, and what is he saying? You're not getting away with this, right? You can't run from this. Maybe you, there's no hiding. Judgment is coming, okay? Judgment is coming. So now, the Lord identifies himself as the sovereign creator. So just so they understand, they can't run because he's the sovereign creator. He's God, okay? And here's what he says. The Lord will show no partiality in dealing with Israel compared to the other nations. Israel had developed this mindset that thought because they were God's children, they were special and they could do whatever they want and they didn't need to worry about it because they were God's children. God says, I'm not showing any partiality, just like I would deal with these other nations. I'm going to deal with you the same way. Now, isn't that interesting? God's like that throughout the scripture, right? He says he shows no partiality. You may be his child, and I am his child, but that does not mean that we're in a special place where we don't have to worry about his what? Judgment. Do you understand? Now, we're not going to hell. We've been saved from that. But God's still going to discipline us for our what? Sin, right? For our sin. All right. The Lord proclaims that. All right. So now he's going to get to the promise. And this is a messianic section. So let me read to you verses 11 through 15. Okay? Because we're going to finish out with this. This is what he promised them. After all that judgment, God follows it up and says, look, but there's a, there's a hope here. Okay, verse 11, on that day, I will rise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will rise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. And I will bring back the captives of my people Israel and they shall build 
the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in the land, and no longer shall they be pulled up. From the land I have given them, says the Lord God. Now, this is a messianic promise here. What kind of messianic promise? Well, here's what he says. The Lord proclaims that on that day, what's that? The day of judgment, okay? The coming day. We've already seen this with the prophets, the day of the Lord. On that day, he will restore the kingdom of David. The kingdom of David, which is torn down now. He will restore the kingdom of David. So this is about the Messiah, okay? The son of David, all right? This renewed Davidic kingdom will be a blessing to the Gentiles who are called by his name. Who is that? I heard whispers. Are we afraid to speak this morning? Who's that? Us, yes, right? This renewed kingdom of Israel will be a blessing to the Gentiles because that's who we are, right? Okay? That's who we are. This day will bring a time when the land will once again experience blessing. I mean, it's kind of a crazy picture here because he talks about the plowman will overtake the reaper. Meaning, the guy who's going out to plant, he's, he's got to tell the reaper to get out of the way because as soon as he's planting, it's, it's already blossoming. It's already producing fruit. Do you know what I'm saying? The, the one who treads grapes is telling the one who sowed seeds to get out of the way because i got to get this crop. It's, it's going to be such like an instantaneous blessing, okay? So the land will, what, experience blessing again. The Lord will bring back his people from exile and they shall rebuild their cities. Right now they're all over the world, right? He will bring them back. And then the Lord will plant his people in the land and they shall never be uprooted again. What a promise. That when he brings them back finally, they're never going to have to worry about being thrown out of the land again. Being thrown out of the land again. Okay, so next week, we're going to get into the one, the little book of Obadiah. It doesn't even have, it only has his just Obadiah. There's no chapter two. It's just Obadiah. So we'll get into Obadiah next week.